All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. Okay, you guys on the line, I've got the great Kyle Anzalone. He's news editor at the Libertarian Institute and opinion editor at antiwar.com. Welcome back to the show. How you doing, Kyle? Doing great, Scott. Thanks for having me back on. Happy to have you here. Tell me the bad news. Senate passes massive $858 billion National Defense Authorization Act, huh? Yeah, only 11 no votes to 80, 83 Ford. So overwhelming majority of uh, everyone in both parties votes for the thing. Uh, it's an 8% increase over the 2022 uh, budget. And I think this is going to end up going to Biden's desk. Now, this is the compromise bill. Uh, so, you know, the House passes one, the Senate passes one, and then the leadership of both parties get together uh, and both houses get together and then just decide what they're going to put in the bill anyway. So usually through that process, anything that, uh, the, you know, the, the anti-interventionist groups work to get into this legislation then gets stripped out and uh, they throw a few more billion dollars in it for the, you know, arms makers and things like that. And so uh, one of the, you know, few people to get an increase with uh, the, the rate of inflation this year will be the Pentagon and the arms maker, Scott. Yeah. Not that they have anything to do with <laughs> the reason that price inflation is so bad with all of the money printing that their entire operation depends on. But uh, anyway, good to know that they're free to do whatever they want and that they get their cost of living increase, even if we're not free and we don't get ours. Um, but okay. Um, and now uh, that doesn't count the VA and that doesn't count the energy department's nukes, right? So we're well over a trillion dollars. Yeah, I think this does count the energy department's news, but I don't oh, yeah? think it counts the VA and okay. some other like intelligence spending and things like that. I guess one uh, little piece of good news, Scott, is maybe the the worst part of this, it, naming Taiwan a major non-NATO U.S. ally, was taken out of the bill. Oh, yeah. Although they're now going to give Taiwan three um, billion dollars in military aid every year uh, through this, and they're they're going to pass it separately. I think. Uh, thirty-seven point seven billion dollars for uh, Ukraine uh, to give them an emergency fund. So some of that will be just direct financial assistance and not military aid. But I'm sure will be tens of billions of dollars in military aid, and that's going to be included in the omnibus, uh, which Congress is going to pass pretty soon. Yeah. Um, but now. Do you know who stripped out the non-NATO major ally thing? Because that was a pretty big deal, huh? I mean, I guess I hear what you're saying, that we're giving them all these weapons anyway. But, I mean, they yeah, were talking about— I don't about... think the White House wanted it, was my understanding. And so somewhere in conference committee, I think, is where that came out. Mm. Yeah, that was, a, that was a pretty big one because it, it was supposed to, like, change the language in all official documents to where we start talking about, you know, the, the U.S. government essentially— um, talks about Taiwan as its own sovereign nation and and really changing the way that they treat them compared to how it had been since 79. So pretty good deal that they backed down on that, I guess. 
<laughs> just a little bit. I mean, it's kind of consistent with the, what the White House wants, where they want to treat Taiwan as an independent nation. They want to arm Taiwan as much as they possibly can. But at the same time, they want to be able to tell Beijing, well, you can't get mad about it because, you know, it's just the status quo situation. Right. Yeah. Which, I mean, I guess that makes sense for them in their own minds to say that. But it's not like Beijing can only think about these things in the way that they're instructed by the Americans. It makes sense that they would say that. I mean, I don't know this, but it would make sense if they said that a certain amount of weapons is too many and that they'll invade then. That the more weapons we pour in, just like in Ukraine. Oh, no, we're carefully calibrating the amount of weapons in order to deter attack rather than provoke one. But then, like some of the CIA guys told Zach Dorfman at Yahoo, see, we told them that they're calibrating it wrong and that the weapons were guaranteed to provoke an invasion rather than deter one, but they wouldn't listen to us, right? So here we are at war in Ukraine and same thing absolutely could happen here, regardless of what they call it. Although the name change would be a pretty unnecessary provocation, but still, it's still just a word, you know? Right. Well, I guess it's not a surprise the policy doesn't make sense because the people Biden has put in charge, like the secretary of the Navy, Carlos del Toro, and the secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall, openly admit they're paranoid about China. One says that China keeps them up at night. The other one said their main focus is going to be China, China, China. So whenever you had that level of paranoia within like your upper level ranks of your government, uh, this is the kind of policy that you get where it's not going to make sense. It's going to provoke China. uh, But at the same time, they're going to think they're doing the right thing because they're not sleeping at night just thinking about President Xi or something. Right. Well, then, isn't it right in the national security strategy, they still say that China is the biggest threat, even though they're in the middle of this proxy war with Russia, that they say this is the center of their attention is the Pacific. Yep, absolutely. You know, Kyle, there's this kind of strange narrative going around on the right about how Biden is in China's pockets on the laptop, something like that, like that time that John Wong completely pwned Bill Clinton back in 1996. And so, you know, red flag. And so the Democrats, they got to be soft on the commies because they're kind of commies and whatever. It doesn't matter that this is Hillary Clinton's pivot to Asia. And it doesn't matter that Joe Biden has doubled down on Trump's doubling down of Obama and Hillary's pivot to Asia. And there's been massive escalations under the Biden administration, regardless of these narratives, right? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is everybody's concerned about China. I think the Democrats think they have to take Russia down in order to be able to deal with China. And then you had this group of American first Republicans who I think are a little bit closer to accurate in identifying that, you know, if you're trying to deal with Russia, it's actually going to make it harder to confront China. And so you have, uh, I think Dave DeCamp wrote this week that Josh Hawley, but it was definitely an American first Republican in Congress who introduced some bill or who is pushing some legislation that would uh, require any weapons that both are, are needed by Kiev and Taipei that they have to go to Taiwan first, uh, you know, to fill those orders first. And that should be the priority of the U.S. government. So, uh, yeah, you're right that that there is this really, you know, weird idea that we, we have to do something. And also that that, again, that Biden is, you know, 
confronting Russia but not confronting China because he's somehow in the pocket of China. When in reality, I, I think they view it as like a longer strategy that they have to confront Russia and Ukraine first to then confront Russia, uh, China over Taiwan probably. Yeah, which is completely stupid. You know, I'll never forget when Donald Trump told the story of how he went and met Henry Kissinger. And he said, hey, Henry Kissinger, I think we should cozy up to Russia to break them off from China. What do you think about that? And then the way he told the story, I'm pretty sure it was something like, and then Henry Kissinger said to me, you're the tallest, handsomest, most successful skyscraper tycoon I've ever met in my life. And you're the smartest person who ever lived and you're a greater president than Abraham Lincoln. And yeah, that's right. That's what we should do. And that's yeah. all it was. It was never loyalty to Russia. It was always, we're up against these two major powers. And back in the 70s, China was the weaker power. So Kissinger split them off from the Soviet Union. Now, China's the stronger power. Now we should split Russia off from them. Assuming you believe in these great power competition type politics, this 19th century mercantilist take on the powers of the earth and American dominance in Eurasia and all these things, this is all in the game. This has nothing to do with um, loyalty to some foreign power or their interests. It was always a question of what's the right way to make the American world empire last longer and achieve more in terms of exerting its power and influence on the world. It's as simple as that. Right. Well, any chance there was a doing that it is now gone. As uh, Ray McGovern has been writing for antiwar.com for about a year now. Uh, and, you know, he rightly points out that he's, you know, the White House still doesn't get this, that the U.S. has gone so far in pushing Russia, you know, over all their red lines in Ukraine and NATO expansion. And then the U.S. now doing essentially the same thing, although, you know, there's different nuances in everything in the Indo-Pacific were with their military buildups, they're carrying out operations through waters claimed by China. Uh, every month now, at least, a U.S. warship is going through the Taiwan Strait, and increasingly, they're bringing British, Canadian, and other countries, you know, Western countries' warships with them, and the, you know, the, uh, you know, increasing uh, military games and bilateral war games conducted with, you know, South Korea and Japan, which. It is mainly, I think, a threat to Pyongyang, but I'm sure Beijing also is very uncomfortable with the U.S. Uh, tying all these countries together, like the Philippines, Japan, South Korea. We have the quadrilateral dialogue with Australia, India, and Japan, with the U.S. being the fourth country there. So, uh, you know, there, there's a lot going on in, in both of these, you know, things confronting both uh, countries, and it's really pushed. Uh, Beijing and Moscow together, as uh, Ray McGovern has written. And unfortunately, the U.S. just hasn't seen it. And, uh, you know, as late as I think like June 2021, Biden was like trying to push this line with Putin and Putin just wasn't buying it at all. Yeah. Um, hey, tell me about this move against the Russian Orthodox Church. I know they split back years ago, uh, the Ukrainian-backed and the Russian-backed Orthodox church there, but there's been some pretty severe recent developments. Yeah. So in recent weeks, the Ukrainian government has started to crack down on the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, it, it basically, Ukraine, uh, President Zelensky claims that they carried out a series of raids uh, in Russian Orthodox parishes, and that showed that 
the that the um, clerics in these parishes were taking orders from Moscow to push a pro Russian narrative in Ukraine, and you know they've uh, in Kiev they've. Comp- this to like you know destroying the cultural fabric of Ukraine. Uh, they've said that Ukrainians who continue to attend uh, these Orthodox churches that again follow the the Moscow you know direction are uh, you know giving into the temptations of evil. And so initially they they announced this campaign, and then about a week later they sanctioned ten top clerics of the Russian Orthodox Church. Although I think almost all of them were. Operating either in Russia or in territory firmly held by Russia uh, in Ukraine, so the Donbass, Crimea, things like that. But then they issued another round uh, of sanctions. I think this one's going to have a little bit more of a bite. And this seized assets of seven uh, clerics of the Russian Orthodox Church, and additionally uh, placed travel bans on them, so they can't enter or leave Ukraine or carry out any kind of legal business in Ukraine. Uh, so, the, you know, this is pretty serious, what what they're doing. And a lot of the rhetoric around it is what seems particularly disturbing to me, you know, calling this church evil, saying that, you know, people who attend these churches are undermining the cultural fabric and attacking, like, the heart of Ukraine and things like this, uh, you, you know, seems to be saying us uh, for, you know, potentially retribution against people who attend these churches and things like that. Um, and additionally, Scott, you know, they, they say that only 4% of Ukrainians attend uh, these parishes now, uh, Eastern Orthodox parishes that take direction from Moscow. But I think that number is actually much higher because they, they've only done a, a few rounds of polling and both of the polls were conducted by Kiev based organizations. So there may be a bias there. Uh, But then you also have all the polling was only conducted in regions that were held by the Ukrainian government. So if Ukraine retakes more territory, then, you know, up to, I think, 20, 30 percent of the the Ukrainian population will be subject to like essentially having the religion banned by the Ukrainian government. Yeah. Sorry. Hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here for Tennessee Hot Sauce Company. Man, this stuff is so good. They get all different flavors. Garlic habanero, honey habanero, pineapple habanero, poblano jalapeno, and the blood orange ghost. They're all so good, I swear. And for a limited time, Tennessee Hot Sauce Company is featuring official Scott Horton Hotter Than the Sun thermonuclear hot sauce. It's full of Carolina Reapers, Scorpion Peppers, Dr. Pepper, hydrogen isotopes, and all kinds of things that'll burn your tongue clean off. Seriously, it's really good. Get yourself a hot sauce subscription. Spend $40 or more and use promo code SCOTT to get a free bottle of Hotter Than The Sun hot sauce. That's tnhotsauceco.com. Hey, y'all got to check out these awesome busts of our hero, the great Ron Paul. They're made by the renowned sculptor Rick Casali. They're 13 inches tall, hand-painted bronze resin based on Casali's brilliant original. Y'all may have seen mine in the background on my bookshelf in some recent interviews. The thing is unbelievable. Check out this incredible piece of art at rickcasali.com slash ronpaul, and you'll see what I mean. Use promo code Horton, and you'll save 25 bucks, and this show will get a little kickback, too. That's rickcasali.com slash ronpaul. Casali is C-A-S-A-L-I, rickcasali.com slash ronpaul. And there's free shipping, too. Well, I'll tell you what, this war sure is a government program. I mean, Vladimir Putin, in the summer of 2021, gave this speech about how there's no difference between a Ukrainian and a Russian and 
they were artificially split away from us anyway, and they all want to come home and all this stuff, or at least, you know, the people of the East was, I guess, the implication. And, uh, and boy, there's just, you know, the consequences of this attack for Russia and the backlash that they're going to have to live with from here on. I mean, Ukrainian nationalism has just gotten the biggest boost it could have ever gotten under, you know, a hundred years of propaganda and just American money and what have you. So, you know, when you talk about, <laughs> you know, splits in churches like this, these are the kinds of things that people remember for hundreds of years and that stick, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the great schism of this and that, you know, separation in the churches. And uh, there's no climbing back down from this, I don't think, for uh, Kiev, unless somehow the Russians got an absolute regime change there. But looks like the country is going to be split, and this church is going to be split, and not much going, no way really to go back from that, I guess. So, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, the Ukrainian government has seized control and banned all opposition media, banned all opposition political parties. And so in any territory that's held by, you know, forces that are, operate under Kiev's direction, uh, the, you know, the, the Ukrainian nationalists have more authority and more sway there than they ever had before. Yeah. All right. So talk about the American side of this thing. We keep pouring in. We the U.S. government keeps pouring in more and more weapons. And I guess the fear is that the Russians are going to launch their winter offensive any minute now or something. I don't know what's going on with that. Um, but I'm a bit confused, I admit, about um, how they plan to uh, to transfer these JDAM bombs. I mean, a JDAM kit is essentially a satellite guidance kit for a dumb bomb that you drop out of a plane. Uh, 500 pound bomb, 2000 pound bomb, something like that. Um, what do the Ukrainians have that can even fire something like that? They're going to drop them from a helicopter or something. They, <laughs> yeah. Push I, them out the window. Or yeah, uh, I what? read, I read one quote where somebody suggested that they could be fired from ground launchers. So I, I suppose that's possible. Um, I, I'm really not entirely sure. I know they talked about transferring another set of MiG-29, so some old Soviet warplanes to Ukraine. Maybe mm. they could put upgrades on those planes or somehow retrofit the JDAM upgrade kits themselves to, to attach onto those Soviet airplanes. You know, one interesting part you kind of bring up there is that these are uh, satellite-guided munitions. And with a couple of the recent attacks deep inside Russian territory, uh, you know, Russia has suggested that U.S. satellite infrastructure could become a legitimate target in this war uh, if U.S. satellites are guiding the Ukrainian bombs to their targets. So, you know, that's something to consider when we're transferring these weapons as well. Uh, those attacks deep in Russia, like 200 and something miles in, Russia said, were uh, that the American satellites are, I guess, Western satellites had to be involved uh, in that attack. Although I'm not so sure that's the case. You, we, you know, the Houthis have carried out attacks pretty deep in Saudi territory. And so uh, they don't have access to American satellites, obviously. So there are other ways, I'm sure, to carry out well, these attacks. Well, and anybody can just things. tap into civilian GPS. Yeah, I mean, those and satellites I think, uh, are constantly broadcasting to the earth, you know? 
Yeah, and I think a, a lot of times what happens is they have uh, like forces on the ground. So somehow there's Ukrainians inside Russia that are marking it, the targets for the drones or something like that. Uh, and I think that's what the Houthis, at least what they claim to have, it did in yeah, Saudi Arabia. And now, so, so talk a little bit more about those strikes inside Russia, because this is really the biggest news. Yeah, I think that was Monday and Tuesday this week. There were two on, or it could have been Sunday and Monday. Uh, there were two uh, the first day and then one on the second day, uh, hundreds of miles in Ukraine. One of the bases houses uh, strategic assets of Russia. And so obviously that creates a little bit more concern uh, of what the, the Russian response is going to be. But, you know, one of the really crazy things about this, Scott, is the lesson learned from Washington is that this can be done. And, you know, maybe we have been too strict with, you know, telling Ukraine not to carry out attacks within Russian territory. And there was a report in the Times of London saying that uh, the Pentagon had given its tacit support uh, for carrying out these kind of strikes and uh, what was not concerned about Moscow's escalation. All right. Well, um, so talk about the. Um, well, I want to hold that one. Let's do one more here on Ukraine, which is about the fertilizer sanctions and the um, all the gas caps and all of that. I don't know if you saw this clip where this guy from Rebel News, I'd never heard of, um, he was on the Tucker Carlson show because he went to Moscow and just checked out the grocery stores and said everything's fine. The Americans, he, he quoted the New York Times and the Washington Post talking about the absolute crisis that we've reduced their economy to over there. And he says, well, that's funny because I'm looking with my eyeballs and they don't seem to confirm that story at all. And um, so I just wonder about the economic war. It seems like, well, it's a government program. It's got to be backfiring, right? Yeah. And, and uh, Gilbert Dottrow has written some uh, of the same kind of stuff when he was uh, has taken trips and vacations to, uh, I think, like St. Petersburg area and more northern in Russia, uh, but definitely not reporting any of the thing that you things you hear in the West about, uh, you know, Russians fleeing, Russians hating the war, or Russian people generally e e e uh, suffering economically. Uh, but we have uh, th this basically a blockade on Russian uh, Russia at this point by the West. You know, they they won't import and don't allow anybody who has to bank with the West to import essentially any Russian products. And this has really created a problem in the agricultural market, particularly with fertilizer, to the point where the White House actually issued letters saying that you will not be sanctioned for uh, buying and importing Russian uh, fertilizer into the U.S. And so uh, the EU seems to be trying to take a similar uh, stance and move now. Uh, there was disagreement uh, among uh, the EU member states, uh, a group of Western states, I think there was about six of them, really wanted to amend the policy, I think, to make it even more clear that there, there were no sanctions on uh, fertilizer and I think maybe more general eco, uh, agricultural products as well. And then uh, Poland led a block of Eastern European states who did, you know, say you you can't amend the the policy at all. And so they say they came to an agreement and modified the language of the sanctions to clarify that third countries are permitted to uh, import Russian fertilizer. This was all reported by Politico, uh, which you know the agreement will take effect on Friday if it faces no opposition from other EU members. But Ukraine was not happy, Scott. Uh, the foreign minister of Ukraine said attempts to allow Russian oligarchs and companies to um, 
the Dior gate from the already imposed EU sanctions deal, a blow to the entire sanctions regime, undermines support for Ukraine and our joint effort to stop Putin's war machine. We strongly oppose them and thank the EU who do so too. And uh, yeah, it's crazy. You know, people need to eat in Africa and other places in the world. Uh, there, there's an increasing hunger and things like that. And the, these Western countries are just trying to make sure that, you know, there's not too much suffering. I mean, they're, they're fine with some, but they want to ease it some. And Ukraine is really lashing out over this. All right. Now, let's end with some good news here. I guess Biden figures there ain't no way in the world he's winning Florida. So possibly begin to warm back up to Cuba as it was in the Obama years. Yeah, so I, I'm actually a little bit more pessimistic about that than when I had wrote that article. But we had three members of the uh, Democrats uh, Congressional and Progressive Caucus, which I imagine is more or less loyal to the White House. I don't think that they would take a trip to Cuba without having permission, at least in, to some extent, from the White House. But uh, the White House is actually really concerned about immigration and people coming from Cuba, Haiti, and Nicaragua, uh, in particular, to the the United States, and they're actually considering caps on the number of people from Cuba who could claim asylum in the U.S. are, are to make those caps stricter. And so I guess you, when the progressives went down there, it doesn't seem like that was on the top of their agenda, but that does seem to be on the top of the White House's agenda here is just stemming the flow of immigrants and not really in any way uh, trying to really improve relations with Cuba, although yeah. there was some easing over the summer of uh, you know, you know, Trump's policy on Cuba, which was a real deviation from Obama's, but we're nowhere near the o Obama uh, closer to detente normalizing relation policy. That's so crazy. And the Castros are gone. You could just kill them with kindness. It would take a couple of months, right, to open up Cuba. Instead, for some reason, they prefer it this way, unless they're going to be able to, you know, turn Havana right back over to the mob they won't settle for anything less than that or what, you know, I don't know. This makes no sense. Dude. Yeah. And you know, Scott, it's one of those things too, where you really hope that it's something the administration, the white house would do early on. So the economic benefits would start to, you know, come in and there would be business interests in not going back. But you know, if he waits three years to start, even easing the sanctions on Cuba. And remember, the first year of his administration, he was actually adding new sanctions onto Cuba. Then it seems uh, really unlikely that the U.S. and Cuba will reach a point by 2024 that the next Republican just isn't going to undo whatever uh, Biden did just the way Trump did to Obama. Yep. yep. Same old story. Let's see. The revolution was in 59, right? Okay. Just making sure we're on the same page here. You might think that this is enough already, but no. All right. Well, listen, I'll let you go. I appreciate you helping us catch up on all the bad news here, Kyle, as always. Yeah, thank you so much for having me back on, Scott. All right, you guys, that's the great Kyle Anselm. He's news editor at antiwar.com, writing oftentimes with Will Porter and with uh, Connor Freeman, but not always, you know. Um, and he's got a ton of stuff. He's got the top news section there on the right-hand side of the page at libertarianinstitute.org. And, of course, he's opinion editor at antiwar.com, so check out all of the bad news views there as well. The Scott Horton Show, Antiwar Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. APSradio.com
antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.